Welcome to episode six of season two of How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams. I'm your host, author Emily White. I want to thank our brave studio audience for coming out in a snowstorm here in Milwaukee at No Studios. I really appreciate it. And I'm super excited as well about everyone that is tuning in online uh, via volume. So just to recap where we are, we, you know, because we're covering the entire modern music industry in this series, you know, from recording to release or creation to execution in order. So we started by getting our art together with Vernon Reed of Living Color. We then dug in on your pre-recording marketing foundation and your pre-order for your release, making sure you're monetizing your music before it's even out. From there, we discussed getting your business affairs together, so all the legalities around music together. We talked about how to record with or without a budget, so your recording should all be in place in this in this step of the, of the process. And last time we talked about music publishing not being scary or confusing, as well as how to land a sync placement. So um, by now, if you're following these steps, you should have recorded and registered all your songs, signed up with a PRO if you haven't already, ASCAP or BMI in the US, registered your songs, and then also registered your songs uh, with Song Trust or whoever your publishing administrator is. Um, so now that you have those five episodes and those five steps down, uh, it's time to prepare for releasing your music. Before we dig into that, I want to share a little bit about our friends at Bandzoogle, who are helping us with this podcast today. I want to take the time to congratulate Bandzoogle members, who are primarily artists, for surpassing $100 million in commission-free sales of music, merchandise, and tickets through their websites. Bandzoogle makes it easy to build a stunning website and online store for your music in minutes. All the features you already need are built in, including dozens of fully customable templates, tools to sell your music, merch, and tickets commission-free, as well as mailing list tools, which I love, to grow your fan list and send newsletters. They have integrations with Bandcamp, SoundCloud, YouTube, Bands in Town, and more, so you can easily add content from your other online profiles, plus live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Plans start at just $8.29 a month, US dollars, which includes hosting and your own free custom domain name. Podcast listeners and people on the live stream and in the audience, uh, sorry about that. I know there's a discount code in here for you. Uh, can go to bandzoogle.com and try it free for 30 days and use the promo code SUSTAINABLE to get 15% off the first year of any subscription. That's bandzoogle.com promo code sustainable. And we'll also share a direct link in the show notes. And on a personal note, I've known the Bandzoogle team for a long time. Really fantastic people, always putting artists first. So it's nice to work with a custom website that is, you know, created for you all, right? And not necessarily just, just general. So I've always been a big Bandzoogle fan. And that really is a perfect segue into today's topic, which is setting up your release and distribution plan. So we live in a streaming world. We all know that. And we also know that you get paid fractions of a penny, you know, per stream, if that. And yet I still see pretty much, not every musician I know, but the vast majority of musicians at all ages 
when the release is out, just popping up the Spotify link. And, you know, we talked a little bit in episode two about setting up your pre-order. Your fans want to support you in the best way possible, but they don't know how if you don't tell them. So, you know, we're going to talk about streaming today for sure. But, you know, when your release day finally comes, you should be set up with your pre-order already through your website. That can be Banzoogle, that can be Squarespace. I don't code and I can use, you know, both of those sites seamlessly, right? So you can be selling your music, um, selling your bundles, all that good stuff, you know, for months in advance. And that's what's called direct-to-fan or direct-to-consumer. And there's two main elements that have really revolutionized the music industry and made it accessible for everyone instead of just a select few. The first was recording, right? Like you used to have to sign your rights away um, in the pre-digital era to be able to afford recording or access to a recording studio unless you were a one percenter. And the other element, uh, you know, that's been cracked wide open in the digital era is distribution. Um, because again, you used to have to sign your rights away in the physical era to access the keys to distribution, to get your CDs and vinyl and everything in stores. Now, any of us can record together and we can distribute our music worldwide instantly, which is really powerful. Um, but like I said, before you pop your Spotify link up on social media and tell everyone you know, what you should do is... Uh, focus on direct-to-fan, which is website, or which is your website. And tech companies are the most valuable companies in the world because they have all of our data. And we just give that away to them as musicians and, and music industry folks. They have our email addresses. They, they know everything about us, right? So when your release day finally comes, you should, this would be the A-plus version um, promote that your music is available on your website. That's where you're going to have the highest profit margin and also collect the most data. And it's not always like the most creative sounding thing. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this in, in the next episode on how to market with or without a budget. But you need to think of yourself as a tech company and be collecting these email addresses and mobile phone numbers for your fans and then driving traffic to your website on day one. Um, on day one of your release is, is what I'm saying there. On day two, I would recommend promoting and pushing out on your social media and your marketing channels, um, promoting your release on Bandcamp. And you, you know, we talked about having a pre-order also available on Bandcamp uh, in episode two. And at Bandcamp, that's where you're going to have the second highest profit margin. You're going to retain roughly 85% of your sales, um, and they're going to receive a 15% commission. And almost more, I mean, I'll say equally as important, but um, more important for the long term, you uh, more often than not get the email address of that fan. And that's how you can communicate with your audience directly forever about your shows and music instead of just being beholden to algorithms and changing platforms like, you know, if you built your career on MySpace or if you're old enough to remember what Friendster is or Vine or whatever, right? Like all these you know, billion-dollar tech companies are just going to come and go. And, you know, I had the absolute privilege of interviewing Seth Godin um, on a different podcast I host, the I Voted Festival podcast. I talked to him last year, and he said it better than I, not surprisingly, because he invented what we're talking about, which is called permission marketing. But, 
you know, on platforms uh, like Spotify and as well as um, social media, you are the product, right? So day one of your release, push out your website. I know that's not always like the sexiest thing, but that's going to be the A plus version as far as I'm concerned. If you really can't handle that, push out your band camp, let your fans know the release is out. And then on day two or three, push out your Spotify link. And by push out, I mean like post on social media and stuff. On day four, post, you know, on your social media, hey, it's on Apple Music. I mean, and you don't have to go in that order of streaming platforms. On day five, you could say, hey, I'm up on Tidal, right? And those are also different ways of promoting your music instead of just saying it's out, it's out, it's out. I mean, you and I know you're saying that, but um, at least you're promoting it in a different way. Okay. So like I said, um, two main things have cracked the modern music industry wide open for all of us. The first is recording and the second is distribution. And so I'm going to take you through a few options of distribution today. The first is um, I mean, it's, it is global distribution, but in the music industry and in the tech world, um, you know, platforms like uh, DistroKid, CD Baby, which we're going to talk about today, TuneCore, Label Engine, they're, they're called aggregators, right? Um, again, to me, they're global distribution companies, but if you ever hear about an aggregator in music, that's what we're talking about because all of us, well, if you have 50 bucks or 20 bucks or, or whichever one you go with, um, that's going to give us access to sharing our, our music worldwide, which is incredibly powerful. Um, so again, just to recap, you know, there's a lot of aggregators out there, but aggregators are global distribution companies for music that are open to everyone. And that's going to be like CD Baby, DistroKid, TuneCore. And I also want to mention Label Engine. Um, you know, those who work in dance music probably know Label Engine already, but um, that's where a lot of dance music artists go. So let's get into it. Um, I am super excited to bring out today's guest. Christine Barnum is the Chief Revenue Officer at CD Baby. Well, let's welcome Christine. Hello. Hey there, Christine. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Thank you for having me. Absolutely. As I said in our sound check, um, you look very Wisconsin in your sweater. Um, so perfect for a snowstorm today. We love it. Yes, I can't be there in person. I can be there in clothing, I guess. That's right. <laughs> exactly. So let's start at the beginning. Um, I mean, I did find out you skipped your senior year of high school in soundcheck, which is very badass, to say the least. Which isn't really a question. Thank you. Yeah. I, <laughs> but go ahead. Yeah. Just escape me. Like, my parents were, were crazy. I'm like, they let a 16-year-old move to New York. But wow, I'm not going to question them. I will just thank them. That's amazing. And we won't digress too much, but I went to college when I was 17. So I can't even imagine being 16. That's actually, and again, not to digress too much. I looked at NYU and told my mom, like, I'm not ready for this coming from Wisconsin. So you went to NYU at 16 years old. Yeah. I mean, I, I turned 17 a little while after starting, yeah. but yeah, in my dorm, the security guard would be like, are you visiting your sister? And I'm like, no, I live here. I love it. <laughs> So is that where you began your career studying music business at NYU? I mean, I have to imagine you were, you know, you were a teenager. Yeah, yeah. So I, I played, uh, I was classically trained and I played music, but I knew I didn't want to go the performance route. Um, I wasn't necessarily the creative type in terms of composing some brilliant piece of work. Um, but 
I, I was reading a book and it referenced someone being a tour manager. And I was like, oh my God, that's a thing. And so I, I drove over to the, the Barnes and Noble at the mall, the next town over and uh, flipped through the big, uh, do you remember the Barron's college guides? Like flipped through that to see uh, what colleges offered music business programs. And at the time it was like NYU and Berkeley. And I was like, the Berkeley one is more music focused yeah. and the NYU one had a little bit more music business focus. So that's what I did. I applied and managed to get in and the rest was history. I love that because I can completely relate. Um, I was on a nerdy um, music internet forum in the late 90s and someone when I was in high school and someone said, um, oh, sorry, like, sorry, I haven't been around. I've been applying to colleges and I got into Northeastern's music industry program. I'm like, I've never heard of that school or that major, but that's my major. And I did similar research to you. I found Northeastern, NYU, actually I found four schools, uh, University of Miami and Middle Tennessee State University. So, but it's wild because now there's like probably hundreds of programs, right? Yeah. Amazing. No, No, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say it's, it's wild. Like all of the the programs that have popped up and like now you can get a music business education just by going on the internet. Like you don't have to go to a massive university. It's like, you can, you can learn what you need to know. That is very true. Amazing. That is very true. I've had that conversation with uh, some folks in the audience for sure. So Tell us about your job working in the box office and as a production assistant at two major venues in Connecticut. I mean, we're, we're chatting before. I'm biased because I did the exact same job in Boston around that time, and it's probably my favorite job ever. I, I would say that this probably falls into some of my favorite work ever as well. Um, it was one of those things. So I, I finished school in 2000, which was peak Napster, which meant no one was getting a job in the music industry. So I ended up working for a title insurance company briefly, which was real exciting. Um, and then I got to a point where I'm like, I'm done. That's it. I need to get back into music. So I took a, a part-time role at a box office and sold tickets. And then I started getting into production and that was where I really just fell in love with, with um, just like the heart and the amazing energy of the touring acts and how it like swoops in and like puts this big production on and packs it all up and heads out. Um, seriously, it's, it's one of the longest hours I have ever worked, but also the most memorable. Um, I think my, my favorite experience in that was uh, whenever Dave Matthews came through. I'm not personally a fan of Dave Matthews, but they are probably my favorite crew that I ever got to work with. Um, And I would occasionally get to go out. um, I would liaise with their ticketing group and then our local box office. And if there were still some seats available that they were getting ready to release, I'd get these amazing upgraded seats and I'd go into like the lawn or the, the worst seats in the back of the house and be like, Hey, it's your lucky day. Do you want to move up and sit up front? And the number of people that were practically in tears, the hugs that I got, just like the amazing appreciation. I was like, yeah, it's an awesome job. I get to deliver good news. So that is one of my favorite things. Fun yeah. About hooking people up. I love hooking people up um, when they're super excited about it. So that that's beautiful. Very cool. And actually, even with your background, I can, I mean, maybe folks would disagree, but 
being classically trained, working in production, and then everything that you've done in finance, like to me, those are like actually very methodical. Like you have to be very organized. You have to be very on top of things. Um, so I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever thought about that, but I can certainly see um, those similarities. For sure. It's so a level of detail. Yeah. So we have, obviously have a lot of independent musicians in the audience Explain your role accounting for receipts prior to show settlements um, when you were working at venues, as well as what the, maybe we st- let's start with, what does the word settlement mean or settling um, at a concert or a show? Yeah. So that's just, you know, tallying everything up at the end of the night, making sure that all of the, the dollars are accounted for, you know, the, the box office sales reconciliations that ties out with what the the touring act has as their records, um, you know, being a, a PA, a lot of what I did was coordinating like the day of show runners, just, you know, people running around and buying goat cheese because that's this person's favorite and they need it. Uh, or, you know, dropping off dry cleaning or what, whatever it is. Um, and just reconciling all those transactions, you know, you've got your float, which is just the cash to, you know, get you through the day, basically petty cash, um, and then, you know, counting that out, making sure that all the receipts tie, you know, PA didn't drop their, you know, their money in the parking lot on the way back from running an errand, things like that. Um, but it's really just an accounting function, making sure that everything ticks and ties and adds up. And if you were expecting to receive X number of dollars that it all is accounted for, um, it's actually a, a later job that I had. Um, at a business management firm and I was so excited because they used to this is so low tech but they would have these custom printed big like manila envelopes of settlement sheets and it gave you like um, it's almost like a treasure map of like oh account for this account for that and it had all the different categories and a line for it and then you could do the math and you could put all your receipts inside super old school super low tech um, but really effective and I was like damn I wish we got to use these at, at my old job. Exactly. And so, you know, maybe some of you know this, but when you're playing a show and if someone asks you, you know, when do you want to settle or how do you want to settle? That just means getting paid at the end of the night. And we'll talk more about this in, um, in the live episodes coming up, but I used to tour manage. And so, you know, a standard club deal and up, you know, theaters and, and higher is going to be a guarantee you know, which means a set amount of money that you're getting no matter what. So say you're getting a thousand bucks and then it's usually 85% after expenses. So what Christine is talking about is, you know, like your catering, you know, dry cleaning at, at the, you know, shed level. Um, those are the expenses that get deducted um, before you get that 85% back end. So as a tour manager, I used to look at every single number and be like, we didn't use towels. You can take that 50 bucks off. Um, but Christine was the one organizing that. So, um, yeah, now you know where those receipts come from. So after that, where did you work? I mean, you referenced it, but it looked like a business man. I wasn't sure if it was a law firm or a business management firm, but it sounds like it was a business management firm. Yeah, it was a a business management firm. Uh, I, I decided that I needed to get back to New York. And I was, it was a, it was a pivotal moment for me. I was like, I'm either going to go to the local community college and learn how to repair cars 
or I'm going to find a job in music in New York and move back to the city. Um, lucky for me, I found a job in New York because I realized I don't really like having my hands dirty. Yeah. Uh, so it worked out. It was just like a, a boutique business management firm, which is a fancy way of saying accounting. Um, you know, we worked with yeah, who are some of our clients. This is like way in the early days of like Strokes and Interpol. Um, B-52s were a client, which I was so excited about because that was the first CD I ever bought with my own money. Um, the album, Good Stuff. So it was a little bit of a, a nerding out moment for me. Um, but yeah, it was a little boutique accounting firm. And I, I did all sorts of things. I answered phones. I filed. I eventually got into royalty auditing and discovered a bizarre passion for that. I don't know what that says about me, <laughs> um, but that's kind of what really sparked my uh, my interest in making sure that artists don't get screwed over. So. Yeah. And you mentioned business management is another phrase for like accounting or accountant. And we're going to talk about um, that deeper in episode 12, but to me, business management means business management means accounting, accountant, bookkeeping in the entertainment industry or music industry. Would you agree with that? Yep. Great. Awesome. So, you know, we just had our music publishing isn't scary or confusing episode, and you were registering artists' works with performing rights organizations. Um, so a lot of the audience members are going to be doing that themselves. Was that fairly easy? Was that hard? Because I know that's that's a task that you had there, a very important task. Yeah, I mean, this is going back to the, the early 2000s. Back then, honestly, it was a pain in the ass because it was primarily on paper. Mm, and, wow. you know, it was in the days of fax machines and sending couriers to pick up paper with wet signatures and, you know, clients not knowing, you know, a personal identification number, or maybe they reversed it. Like, it was just not a, a streamlined process. Mm -hmm. It was challenging and like getting letters of direction and having to explain what those are. And I mean, I'm sure that that element still exists today. Um, but back then it was just very, very laborious, yeah. <laughs> um, not efficient. Now you can do so much of that online. I think there are still some societies outside the U.S. that require like a wet ink signature, mm -hmm. a little bit more irritating, but it super, super important work. You know, you have to register your content if you want to get paid for all the, the various uses. Um, and this isn't PRO related necessarily, but this was back when Sound Exchange posted this massive list of money and artist names that they're like, we have money for you. And I remember I'd have downtime in like my regular day to day. I would go to the one computer that had internet access in the office. And I would just sit there doing control finds for like different iterations of our artist names and uh, clients that we represented, just trying to find money and like reunite them and then register with sound exchange. And that was a, it was fun. It was like fun looking under couch cushions and being like, oh, I found something. I remember those days too. And we're going to be talking about Sound Exchange at the end of this episode and making sure you sign up um, so you can get more money. Um, but now, yeah, but now it's easier. And I would say like, if any part is cumbersome of, you know, PRO stuff, it's signing up. 
But once you've done that, you're good to go. Then get in the habit of you write a song, you go and register it, and then you also go register it with Sound Exchange or let your publishing administrator know. So this is what it used to be like. So when you're, you know, frustrated that you have to be uh, registering your songs, know that it's actually gotten a lot better. Yeah. So you were also preparing artist royalty statements there. You know, what does that mean? What did you learn doing that? Yeah. So one of our clients was an independent label and they're not around anymore, unfortunately, but they, they didn't have an in-house royalty department. And so they outsourced that to us and that meant, you know, quarterly um, and twice annually deliveries of massive sales histories. Some of it was electronic, like it was starting to trickle in, but so much of it was still on physical paper. And it was just me, you know, grinding in Excel day in, day out, generating statements. And it was, it was tedious, but also very fulfilling because like just going through with a fine tooth comb and making sure like, okay, good. I captured this. I captured that. Um, It just, making sure that artists are getting their fair share. Um, And that is also the moment when I discovered uh, how small a slice of a composition someone can receive when there's collaborators. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I think we had one track that had, I think it was like 37 different collaborators. And I was always like, oh my God, (laughs) that's a lot of, that's a lot of effort just to, to get those produced. But it's like, I I still want that person to get their, you know, a dollar 58 or whatever it may have been uh, that like, that's just as important to me as, you know, someone who owns the whole, the whole composition. A hundred percent. That's, I really, uh, refined my Excel chops in those days. I bet. Absolutely. So one last thing, uh, you know, about your time at the business management firm, you were also doing royalty audits for artists to ensure contractual Mm -hmm. compliance with, you know, their publishing and and their merch agreements. What did you find? What did you learn? Was that, was stuff missing? Uh, Yeah, it's, it was kind of, astonishing how willy-nilly some some places were you know I, I remember I was on one audit I was I was up in Canada and I had made a whole bunch of selections which in auditing you you look at accounting records and it's like oh FedEx fee three hundred dollars mm-hmm. and you can select that as something that you want to inspect to confirm like oh this was for FedEx it was three hundred dollars and it was for this release hence I just remember going through some of the selections and there'd be like sticky notes stuck to the bill being like, not sure what this is. Just stick it on this release for now. And I'm like, I get you have to get business done, but Oh my word, it just felt so flippant to me. And it was always just shove it towards the big title, the big release, they'll absorb it. Mm. Um, I also learned, and I didn't know that I was learning this at the time because I just didn't know the word 
but the value of good metadata from the outset. Um, way, way back, it's been a while since I've done it, maybe it still exists, but there would be essentially unmatched royalties that the royalty teams couldn't associate with a particular release and it was called a suspense account. And you'd always have to sign a non-disclosure agreement to get access to it because you'd see earnings for everyone and anyone, not necessarily just the, the client or artist that you were auditing on behalf of. <laughs> we'll never forget, I was in, um, I think it was the, the Universal Publishing Office in, in California. And like the suspense binder was like this thick, double-sided, you know, dot matrix printed statements. And I'm flipping like page after page after page. I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm like, I want to slip a note to, to this artist to be like, you should check this out. But it was because there wasn't good metadata. There just wasn't enough to connect automatically or systematically or methodically, whatever it was. There wasn't enough to connect the earnings over here with the release over there, um, which it ties back to metadata, which in this day and age is so crucial, so important, so valuable. Um, I just didn't know what I was seeing at the time, but now looking back, I'm like, oh, I get it. A hundred percent. And that's what's so powerful about the era we're in now is you're not relying on a folder um, of, of your expenses and FedEx receipts and was it for my release or whatever. It's like you're getting, yes, there's, you know, an aggregator administering it, but you are getting the funds directly um, and, you know, for the most part, it's digital. So uh, that's very exciting. So we're going to dig in on CD Baby in a second. But what is Chief? I saw that. Oh, yeah. So well. Chief. Yeah, it is a, um, it's like a private network of community. Uh, it's for like women in executive leadership roles. Great. So it's kind of like LinkedIn a little bit, but they have really focused programming uh, specific to, you know, women in leadership roles, the struggles they may face, the challenges that might come up, you know, how to advocate and um, negotiate for yourself in a, uh, you know, in a male-driven world, which in the music industry, I feel like is a little bit worse than other industries, perhaps, or maybe a little slower than other industries to adapt to having more women in leadership roles. But it's just a community of strong women leading and it's amazing they have great educational resources networking opportunities all, all sorts of good stuff fantastic well check out chief everyone i'm definitely going to look into that okay so you joined cd baby in 2006 what was the company like at that time from a technology standpoint Uh, looking back now, <laughs> I'll say it was quaint. <laughs> um, at the time, it was it was pretty cutting edge. Yeah. You know, when I started, uh, Derek Sivers, our founder, I, he hired me, and he was so proud to show off. There was like this big loft built in part of the warehouse, and he was so proud to show off what he called um, Captain and the Army, and it was all of the like actual computers, like little mini towers that stored all of the digital files. Wow. And they were all like, I'm sure it was a safety hazard at the time. I'm, I'm not going to get into that, but it was just like all these cords plugged into power strips and just like a sea of computers 
and then this one big one called Captain, and then that controlled all of the army machines. But that was how we digitized the CDs that came in. You know, every C CD that arrived, there was someone that would scan the artwork. They they rip the the contents of the CD and uh, encode it into the right files for Apple, for eMusic, for Rhapsody, whoever are the the DSPs were or like digital stores were at the time. And it was just like the sea of computers. Yeah. Um, and it was impressive. It was well before cloud computing. That was his like, you know, low tech slash at the time, high tech version of the cloud. Um, we've since progressed <laughs> from that. We now have, you know, things in a giant data center and virtual storage and cloud computing and all, all the buzzwords. So we have definitely, definitely evolved. But it, at the time, yeah. it was great. Cutting edge. No one else really doing it. And it was essentially iTunes days, right? Um, you were delivering music mm-hmm. to iTunes. And I feel like there was CD, physical CD stuff going on, too. I'm just remembering. Or am physical I making CD. that up? Okay. No, no. At that time, physical was the main, yeah. um, the main revenue source for our artists. Like, I remember the... And I'd worked there for a while, but the very first time that we we hit this one milestone in our iTunes reporting, we're like, holy shit, that's amazing. And now it's like, yeah, that's cute. That was such a little number. Um, but it was like I was there for the shift from like CDs being everything and yeah. digital being this little tiny bit of it. And now it's like CDs are this bit and then digital is everything else. Well, that's one reason I've always been so impressed by CD Baby. I mean, it's kind of like Netflix in a way, you know, for people that remember Netflix used to be like a snail mail DVD delivery service, right? And so you guys have have certainly um, evolved. And and I'm always very fascinated by that evolution and and how the technology changes. Um, But from there, you worked as a controller at CD Baby from early 2008 to 2015. I remember those years technology-wise in music very clearly. Um, First, what's a controller? Yeah, good question. I asked that, too, when they asked me if I wanted the role. I was saying, what what is that? Uh, You you may have heard the term comptroller. I feel like a lot of cities have comptrollers. But it's basically a management role. Um, that is responsible for the accounting process, you know, hiring, building out the team, making sure that, you know, the accounting requirements are, are being met. It's setting controls to make sure that, you know, you're not going to allow fraud to occur within the organization. Like you can't have someone running an accounts payable scheme where they're, they're setting up a, a, a vendor account to, pay some company, but it's really their company and they're just bringing in cash. So it's making sure that, you know, all the I's are dotted, T's are crossed, bills are getting paid, accounts are being reconciled, you know, invoices that uh, we issued are, are being paid as well. Um, so it's all kind of the, the men, first level kind of managerial role for an accounting team. So very, very glamorous. I'll say. <laughs> but very important, especially at a company like CD Baby. <laughs> So you held that role from 2008 to 2015, which again, that's the shift from iTunes and downloads to streaming. So how have you seen the company, technology, and distribution itself shift through those years? Yeah, um, I mean, 
the shift from downloads to streaming, I mean, there was that moment in between of uh, tethered downloads. That was always a, a fun one to try and explain, um, especially if you know someone didn't sync their device for six months and then all of a sudden you get a windfall and like, oh yeah, someone just plugged in their Zoom and whatever it was. Um, but it was, it, it, I would say that generally our artists were a little bit skeptical because they're accustomed to, you know, getting, you know, $10, $15 from a physical CD sale, then switching to a 99 cent download. And now it's like, oh, wait, anyone can access my music and I'll get paid how much? So it, it there's definitely a learning curve, but then I think people kind of embraced it and it's like, oh, anyone can get my music and they don't have to make a big commitment. Um, and then also that shift to just where music was being consumed, you know, things like um, social video monetization, micro sync, things like that. Really important, um, you know, having your, your music, it's going to end up in YouTube, on YouTube inevitably. Why not take control there and, and enroll your music in a sync program and get paid part of the ad dollars of the subscription revenue? Because, you know, if your music is in some viral cat video that, is adorable and people are watching it and your music happens to be in it yeah you're entitled to some of that so just the shift just a really big shift in how and this is a little after 2015 i'm getting ahead of myself but just the shift in how and where music is consumed um we also saw a real big shift just in the global nature of it like cd baby was always available to anyone outside the u.s and we made a real intentional move to you know start offering our our website and our support in spanish and portuguese and just kind of embracing the the global nature and accessibility that more and more people were having in terms of getting their music recorded getting it distributed all the things i mean it it's so true i was just talking to someone the other day more more from the touring perspective but you know from the american perspective the american music industry used to be like you know, and releasing go, goes along with touring, like U.S., and then you would go to Europe, and then you would go to Japan, and not even really the rest of Asia, and then Australia, and then if you weren't too burned out, you would go to South America, and now it's like, how many, I mean, putting you on the spot here, but how many countries does CD Baby deliver music to, like? I mean, it's probably easier to count the number of countries you right. don't deliver music to. Yeah. Exactly. There's people everywhere. There's music fans everywhere. Um, So I love it. So you have, you know, worked your way up in the company very methodically. What advice do you have for up and coming music industry professionals considering, you know, you've gone step by step from director of finance to a VP, then senior VP before becoming, you know, your current role of chief revenue officer? Um, and I'm just going to keep running on with this sentence for a company that's home to more than, and this was from 2019, 650,000 artists and 9 million tracks around the globe and growing. Yeah. Um, you know, on paper it, it looks or sounds pretty, pretty linear, but it was, uh, in the moment, not, yeah. <laughs> not quite so intentional, you know, like technically my, my background is music business. I, was not a fan of accounting when I had mm. to take those classes. And so the fact that I ended up in accounting and actually really loving it was 
a surprise and not how I kind of pictured my, my life uh, unfurling. Um, but a willingness to accept like a new challenge and being like, sure, I'll give it a shot. Worst case is I fail. Um, I'm okay with that. Um, cause I just have a innate curiosity. Like I'm constantly learning. I'm constantly trying to figure out new things. Like I'm getting ready to do a program in, um, international mergers and acquisitions just because I'm like, I've done a little bit of it and it's fascinating and I get real antsy if I'm not learning something. So just being open to giving something new a shot, even if it's intimidating, like you're, it's not going to kill me doing accounting. You know, I, I can learn something, I can fail at something. And as long as you take a lesson away from that failure, it's a success. Um, and then, and, and this is specific to, to my journey, but, you know, based on how we were set up from an ownership structure and, you know, there being comparable roles at our parent company, trying to figure out ways to differentiate myself from that so that I could progress. Uh, because there's a lot of like, oh, well, you have this title and they have this title. You do the same things. And why should you progress? And it's like, well, because I'm, like, I'm antsy. Like, I always want to do more. So figuring out ways to get creative and be like, oh, I'll take this on or I'll take this on and, you know, expand my role in different ways to just, you know, differentiate myself. Um, and just being patient, you know, that I, I might be clamoring for something that there might be something else going on in the background that I might not have eyes on or like some broader strategic move where it's like, okay, I have to sit and be patient and just kind of like do my, do my thing for a minute. And then when the time is right, I can slot in and be like, Oh, now I've progressed. Um, but yeah, I mean, overall advice, just patience, don't anticipate linear progression. And just look for ways to, to differenti- differentiate yourself and, and also advocate for yourself because someone's not going to come and be like, hey, I think you're ready for this promotion or I think you're ready for this change. Just be like, raise your hand when you're confident and be like, I'm ready. Or how can I get myself ready for that next step? Yeah. And to me, your journey has really done that in a few ways. Like, even though, like, I, I totally hear what you're saying, how it hasn't necessarily been linear. Like, you have come up through the ranks, and I feel so strongly about um, not missing a rung on the ladder or you're going to fall. You know, like, I've, I have a book out called Interning 101, and I've seen students do that, right? Like, they want to jump to, like, level five or level six, but I'm like, but you don't know how to do level zero, to be honest, or two or three or whatever. And so, and, and we just talked about, like, I hope this is, like, um, not, not inspiring or however I'm trying to say it, but it's like, we just talked about how much fun we had being like box office and, you know, production assistants when we were coming up. So a lot of times when people think like, oh, I want to be in the C-suite or whatever, or whatever, being in the C-suite is actually really stressful. I mean, I'm speaking for myself. Um, I don't want to put that on you, but yeah, I just think it's really important how, um, you know, it, to me, it looks like you went step by step. And then you also really kept an open mind on, you know, educating yourself and, and knowledge. I mean, you have, I don't have it in front of me, but also like degrees and certificates and continuing education from Cornell um, and through a variety of programs. So that's really important too. It's just like you kept an open mind and, and kept educating yourself, which is, again, not really a question. Yeah. Well, and something that you said about, you know, skipping a rung, it's like humility. 
yeah. is so important and crucial and not claiming that you know it all. It's like, I don't walk into a room like, I'm the expert. I know everything. Right. It's like knowing what you don't know and being willing to be like, oh, I could learn something from this person or they're the true expert. What can they teach me? Um, yeah. So humility. So, so important. A hundred percent. I lead a very large team at I Voted Festival and I have like the best C-suite in the world. And I come at them all the time. I'm like, here's what I think. Tell me if you guys think that's a terrible idea or whatever, you know, like I want their feedback. I, I want to know. So yeah, it's not about knowing everything. It's, you know, about collaborating, collaborating towards the best possible um, outcome and end result. For sure. So you touched on one thing before, um, before we dig into what I call the vegetarian meat of CD baby. Um, you kind of answered this, but can you tell us what a micro sink is? Oh yeah. Um, so depending on who I'm having a conversation with, they might be like, that's a micro sink. And someone else might be like, no, that's social video monetization. Um, it's basically just a short little container of, you know, moving pictures and your audio lined up with it. A traditional sink, you know, you might think more of like a commercial or, you know, some scene in a movie, but a micro sink could just be like a YouTube video of um, like an Instagram reel kind of thing. Uh, so it's just, you know, a very tiny portion of, of the sync world where it's music and video together versus like a, you know, million dollar commercial with a huge budget for getting the, you know, the latest hit song in it. Yeah. Like you, you mentioned YouTube. It's a perfect example. Yep. Love it. Okay. So now we're going to dig in on this episode, setting up your release and distribution plan. And, you know, we talked about how, you know, global distribution through aggregators has completely revolutionized the modern music industry. You know, the first piece was recording, but the second piece is being able to get, you know, your music everywhere. So with a variety of aggregators and distribution options available to artists, why should they choose CD Baby? Because um, it's awesome. You know, I've, I've been here, my 17th anniversary is next month. I have never been anywhere that long in my life. Yeah. Um, and I like to think that people should choose CD Baby because we genuinely care. Uh, a lot of my colleagues are musicians themselves. You know, they understand what it takes to, to create music, to release music, to, you know, make a career out of music. And so they, they have your best interests at heart. They understand what you're going through, what the, you know, the struggle is and what the joys are. Um, and our business model, you know, you hear like, DistroKid, keep all your royalties. but for us, you know, we retain 9% of your digital distribution, but your success is our success. Like we want to negotiate the absolute best deal that we can get with, um, you know, the Spotify's and iTunes and Apple's of the world, because if you do really well, we also do well. And so we have, we're, we're motivated for you to succeed. So, and we also don't take your music down. And I've actually done the math on that. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say that's my spiel for why, why you should choose CD Baby because we genuinely care. Well, that is very true because I've known many of your team members for a long time. And I've had, you know, I'm going to talk about this actually when you're off, but I've had professional relationships with team members there that help promote our artists that work with CD Baby, right? And help get them those features and everything, which I 
don't feel like that's the case with a lot of aggregators, but I can't believe I'm saying this to you. Um, I've done the math. And if you're a new artist, if you're an entry level artist, like mathematically, you're going to make the most money working with CD baby. So that's really fundamentally. I mean, if you're making like less, again, I, I don't even want to quote myself on this, but if you're making less than 500 bucks a month on streaming, like CD baby is your best, you know, is where you're going to have the highest profit margin. So, um, yeah, it's also math as well. Yeah, no, it, and that's the thing, like, you, you know, DistroKid is great at talking about there's like $20 a year, unlimited releases, keep all your royalties, but then they don't get into the asterisks of, okay, if you want to go to the store, it's this much, if you want to go there, or you want to do this, you want to do that, it's all these additional fees, right. and then if your credit card declines at the end of the year, your music comes down, right. um, whereas with CD Baby, our value and especially right now, we have um, a limited time offer. It's been running for a few months now. Rumor has it that offer might be ending soon-ish. Um, but it's $5 for a release, single, album, whatever. It's 5 bucks, um, And, you know, we're never going to take it down unless you ask us to. Mm-hmm. So even if, you know, you have like this big moment and it's raking in all sorts of money and your dreams are coming true and then people forget about you overnight... It's still going to be there if someone does discover it again. Like, no, like you don't have to have a certain threshold of earnings for every single release to make it a, a viable, you know, a good return on investment for what you're paying in every year. It's like after that initial fee, it's just we just send you checks, you know. That's such or a good, yeah. We don't send too many. That's such a good point. That More I direct. <laughs> That's such a good point I hadn't even considered. And I don't really want to be like, you know, speaking negatively about other you know, anything, but, um, yeah, even if you have an old card on file with district, it's not even like, oh, you're maxed out or it's declined or whatever. It's just like, it could just be an old card you forgot about. I didn't realize your music would be taken down. Um, so that, that's pretty wild. That's an important thing to consider. So something that's yeah. always, and I mean, for some artists, please, they, go ahead. I was going to say for some artists, they, they, they love it, you know, and yeah. I, I want people to choose what's best for them. Uh, so I have great friends at DistroKids. Yeah. We're not not really arch enemies, but different businesses, different priorities. That's really what I've always loved about your team and kind of your sister companies as well. I I always, I hear that at SongTrust too. You know what I mean? If we're right for you, cool. Mm -hmm. If a, you know, a traditional publisher is right, great. Like, um, that's definitely been a big contributor to all of your success. So, Speaking of success, I've had a lot of success uh, working with CD Baby over the years with artists um, through your additional services. So what additional services are available to artists when distributing uh, their music with CD Baby? Yeah, so uh, we have, I was thinking of this during your intro, we have a, a um, service, a product called Here Now. It's, you know, a super lightweight, single page website. It gives you a a URL that you can drop on your social, share with your email list, which I highly encourage. Get those email addresses, those phone numbers, super important. Um, But you can share a link and it has links to your music on all of the streaming services. So Spotify, Apple, Deezer, you can drop in a custom link to send to your own website or wherever. Um, But then it lets your fans choose where they want to listen. So, you know, if I was releasing music and, you know, I, I use Spotify, but maybe, you know, some of my fans prefer Deezer or maybe 
And then you can use that to help inform like, oh, maybe, you know, I, maybe I should do some ads on this platform because more of my fans are clicking here. Um, and it's, it's a really lightweight, really affordable. I think right now it's $2.95 a month. Um, and that is a great option. We also have tools available through show.co, which you can set up pre-save campaigns on Spotify or pre-ad campaigns. I always confuse who does pre-saves and who does pre-ads. Um, anyway, you can set up campaigns through there. Um, we also, we love Banzoogle. So I, I definitely appreciated those comments earlier. If you uh, have what it, have the, uh, the energy for a full website, sign up with Banzoogle. You can point your, your Here Now page to Banzoogle and then you can, you know, your fans can see your tour dates. Um, we also have, uh, if you're getting ready to release an album, we have a free tool called the Release Plan Generator. It's, you know, it's free. Anyone can use it. They don't have to use CD Baby. You put in your release date, um, a couple other fields, and then we give you milestones. It's like, oh, on this date, you should have your artwork ready. On this date, you should have your promo plans ready. And it walks you through like the lead times. It gives you something actionable rather than being like, oh, I'm overwhelmed by the idea of a release. It's like bite-sized pieces with dates. So you can put it on your calendar and be like, all right, today is the day I do this. And that's a free, a free tool that we, that we offer. And then um, another free service is called Stages. And, you know, our, we call it Essentials. That's just regular CD Baby. Anyone's open for that. But you can drop in your Spotify URI, your socials, all these things. And we're able to track like, you know, stream counts, followers, all these different metrics. And then if you reach a certain threshold, you kind of move up to the next level. And that entitles you to free submissions. We can help with playlist pitching. Uh, we can help our artists get verified on socials if they're in a certain part of our stages program. And then something that a lot of people don't realize is if you're killing it, and you're really successful, we're negotiable on our 9% fee. Um, that's not a thing that we talk about super broadly just because everyone is like, I'm going to be the next big thing. And it's like, no, no, that's great. I'm sure you will be. But you need to be there for us to, to negotiate on that. But it's a, it's a great service. Like we, um, we just uh, had the, the latest Owl City release, which was, was awesome. It's like Owl City's huge. And they came back. It's wonderful, but they use our stages program and it's just a little bit more hands-on kind of label services type type work. And we don't, we don't charge anything extra for that. I didn't know that. That's a very important fun fact. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Um, you talked about, I'm putting you on the spot with this, but you talked about uh, kind of dates as far as, or timelines as far as um, releases go. Roughly how far in advance should artists be uploading their music to CD Baby um, to let the algorithms and playlists kind of do their thing. Cause I, I meet artists all the time that are like, okay, I'm uploading. And it's going to be out tomorrow or, or whatever. Like how much roughly, how much lead time should they give themselves? Yeah. So great, great question. I was actually just playing with the release plan generator mm-hmm. this morning. Cause I hadn't looked at it for a while and I plugged in April 22nd as my, my release date. Um, and based on this, it recommends that you make sure that all of your content has been delivered to the DSP by uh, early April. Okay. And so you can set that release date. So just make sure that it's already in the, you know, in, in your member's account 
everything's gone through the approval process, it'll be delivered and then it'll just kind of sit on the shelves until it's ready to, to be, be available. Um, but no, so many artists are like, oh, I've got a big release coming out on Friday and it's like Wednesday afternoon. And I'm like, oh, oh that's cutting it kind of close. <laughs> Who so here, have people experienced that? Yeah. Have you done that? Yeah, Eli's done that. Um, so three weeks. Can you hold out three weeks? Like it's going to let the technology do its thing. And like I said, that is a really helpful tool, tool where you can literally, it's literally just going to spit out the information to you. So thank you for that. So you guys also have a lot of educational resources for artists. Like, you know, tell us a little bit about that. You know, how can artists continue to empower and educate themselves um, through some of the resources you offer? Yeah, so uh, it's not branded as CD Baby, but we have the DIY Musician blog. We have the DIY Musician podcast. You know, um, we have sometimes conferences, sometimes smaller events around the country where we have, you know, industry experts come in and talk and provide really actionable advice on how an independent artist can, you know, further their career or use, um, like I'm thinking back to our conference this past August, um, we had Pandora speaking about how to use the, the tools in Pandora AMP. And it was mm-hmm. great. It's like, oh, these things are available and just like super actionable, tactical stuff that is attainable. And yeah. it's not some big, massive, overwhelming like, oh my God, this needs to be my full-time job kind of thing. But it's like, oh, I can do this, 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 and this and kind of see tangible results from that. Um, but definitely check out the DIY Musician blog. It's free. Anyone can read articles about it. It's relevant whether you use CD Baby or not. Uh, you know, it helps uh, clarify some of the scary parts of publishing that make it sound stressful. Uh, so, yeah. Well, hopefully they don't think music publishing is scary because that was the last episode. Well, yes, not anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you covered that. Yes. <laughs> um, and just to be clear, you know, you guys only take a percentage on, you know, Spotify, title, like uh, basically the digital service, you know, digital service providers, not Bandcamp or website and direct to consumer, which is what we were talking about before. So I just want to clarify that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that is, that is correct. Great. Um, uh, and yeah. if we need help with your uh, band camp fulfillment, this is another thing we do. We do third party logistics. So we can, you know, help you if you have some massive, you know, physical release that you need help getting like sent out the door. That's another service we offer. Can you, can you explain that a little bit more? Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm going to, actually go to our website. No, literally right like, are you talking um, about like a big CD shipment, a big vinyl shipment? Like, yeah, yeah. We do a lot of special campaigns for people, um, where, you know, they'll send us an export of their, their band camp sales and they ship their stock to us. And then, cause we have a massive warehouse with CDs yeah. in it. still people still buy them. Yeah. Um, and we'll, our team will pick, pack, and ship. They'll do all your fulfillment to, That's amazing. to your fans. It's great. And we've done stuff where it's like, oh, the this tier, you know, maybe they get a tote bag with a sticker sure. and vinyl. And they'll make all those little packages um, in the different, you know, assorted, uh, I was going to say party favors. But, uh, you know, the different assort, assorted packages and tiers. And we do that fulfillment as well. 
That's great. Um, just one last question about CD Baby. I mean, to me, you guys really have those higher royalty rates, I would assume, because of your early partnership with iTunes, because um, that was in like 2003. So is that relationship still yeah. resonating and, and helping artists today? Because I believe you're the only alligator. Let's try aggregator. <laughs> Uh, with top preferred partner status with both Spotify and Apple Music. Yeah, I mean, I can't definitively say that it helps, but it certainly doesn't hurt. You know, we're CD Baby's getting ready to to celebrate our 25th anniversary this year, which mind blowing, yeah. amazing. Um, and we were a launch partner with iTunes. Um, you know, depending on on who you are you you know maybe you know itunes is also the legacy player and i feel like it's you know it's been surpassed by by spotify and youtube in terms of you know overall monthly volume but i i think it also you know the fact that they do have very strict very specific guidelines the fact that we're able to follow all those for apple and for spotify like that shows that we have our shit together you know we take it very seriously um i think it helps uh, you know, support our, our reputation. It's like, I say legacy, you know, we, we're a legacy brand, yeah. which is great. And from a reputational standpoint, you know, we're here because we have been successful. We are reliable. We are trustworthy. But then for younger people, I'm a little bit like, oh no, I'm like, are they like, I don't want to use my father's distribution company. Um, so like, I, I'm a little concerned. Sometimes I hear legacy and I'm like, oh no, maybe some people think that's stodgy. But, you know, we might not be the hippest today, but, you know, we're, we take what we do very seriously. We are so focused on the success of our artists that, you know, I think some of those long-term relationships and, you know, a focus on attention to, to detail and following guidelines it definitely, definitely helps. I wouldn't sell yourself short because I don't think anyone thinks Netflix and is like, oh, that DVD shipping company. So totally fair. I will take that. I will <laughs> shift my mindset. Awesome. Just a couple other things. And then I want to open, open it up to any questions in the audience. Tell us about your work at My Voice Music. Yeah. So um, My Voice Music is a Portland nonprofit and it's focusing uh, their little tagline is write, record, and release. And they focus mm -hmm. on providing, you know, education services to uh, youth ages 9 to 24. They serve the community that, that we're in. So people can come to the studio just from the neighborhood or wherever in town and participate in classes and camps. But then they also go to, you know, uh, youth treatment facilities, um, wow. um, what is it? a juvenile detention, all sorts of different things. So it helps, you know, not just at risk youth, but whoever is interested, you know, really understand like how you can, can write music. You learn to record, you learn basic production techniques. And then at the end you get to release it and have like a concert and it's fun. Um, and I was really excited. They'd reached out um, looking for a treasure for their board and I was like, oh, my God, yes, because way, way, way back when, um, when I was in college, I interned with an organization that was just starting called Road Recovery and very similar mission. And they're celebrating their 25 year anniversary. 
And so this very much felt like getting back to my roots. Um, and it was just, they were looking for accounting help, the treasury guidance. And I was like, yeah, this is right up my alley. So I've been doing that for a couple of years. Um, sadly, our founder and executive director, he was on a cycling, cross-country cycling trip and was killed in an accident. Mm. And so like that was tragic. And we're like, this could either you know, be the make or break moment. And it really was a galvanizing moment. People have really come together. We have an amazing new executive director, this woman, Amy Sabin. She came from another Portland music company. And now we're getting ready. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ready to start building out our founder's dream of um, uh, a like, brand new recording studio out in East Portland. It allows to serve more people, more students, and just be a great facility. Uh, so if you know anyone that wants to donate gear, hit me up. Uh, but it's just a, it, it's a great organization and I'm, I love serving on the board of it and being able to apply like my accounting nerd skills to helping a really cool community organization that is both local and also in music. Amazing. And what a powerful legacy uh, in honor of the founder. That's, that's really beautiful. In addition to the incredibly important work that you're doing. So last question. Do you live on a farm? I do live on a small farm. <laughs> um, during the pandemic, uh, living in a very small house with two small children, I was like, I need more space. So we moved out. Uh, just We're just outside of the city now, but we have a little farm. I've got alpacas and sheep and chickens and turkeys and two dogs that were just barking very loudly. I hope you didn't hear them. I didn't. Um, and then some cats. But yeah, it's great. It's mud season right now, though. So it's a little bit like, bleh. not my favorite season, but it also means I can start planting all of my seeds in the greenhouse and wow. think about summer and fresh veggies. Yes. One last question, follow up on that from me. Is that something that helps you to stay balanced? Absolutely. Like, I remember there's one day, it was just, it was a really challenging, challenging work day back in the fall. And I was like, I need a minute. And I went out into my yard and I was just picking figs from our fig trees and my sheep were hanging out with me and like being ridiculous and trying to steal the figs from my basket. But I was like, it was just such like a, a calming and just centering moment. I'm like, they're not asking anything of me. And it was just a, just like a quiet and just very, just very special and sweet way to like calm myself and kind of come back to the ground and just be like, okay. I can get through this and it's delicious because fresh figs are amazing. I love that. So cool. 
Um, so I want to open it up to the audience. Does anyone have any questions for Christine on distributing your music to Spotify and everything? Um, same if we have any questions online. Eli's thinking. What are any issues you, and maybe you haven't had any, any issues you've had um, when you are distributing your music besides maybe rushing and doing it under three weeks? Yeah, Eli. Um, well, recently, um, this random song was like posted under my artist name, the girl. And people were like, this isn't you, is it? And I was like, no. And that's just like really annoying. And I like, I don't know if you type in the girl in any streaming, the bunch of things are going to come up. There's not that many artists with that name, but just like, I, it's a very general like keyword. So I don't know, like, how do you kind of claim your name and, like, make sure things aren't getting confused out there and, like, other people are distributing under your name or whatever? Yeah, that is something that we see pretty frequently, you know, with common names. It's like Bob Smith. I actually don't know how many Bob Smiths there are on Spotify, but, you know, a super common name if um, things can get kind of mismatched and associated with the wrong artists on Spotify or YouTube, uh, it's really important that you claim your YouTube uh, official artist channel, get your Spotify, pro, the Spotify for artists. And then once you have that, you can get that, that artist ID or I forget the exact term, but it allows it to, you know, to cleanly map and you can be like, hey, that's not mine, kind of get that out of there. But take advantage of these services. You know, these platforms want artists to use them. They want artists to sign up for them. Um, it makes it easier for everyone. And also, that made me think of a point that I was talking with the um, head of our, our customer support team. And I was like, what should I, what advice should I share? And she was like, make sure that artists take it seriously when they're filling out their release information. Like, treat it like it's a, a tax form or a, you know, a bank account application, something that you would fill out very carefully. Uh, you know, make sure that your artist name is spelled correctly, that the artwork matches the release title. Um, if you're entering your bank account details, make sure that you double check and didn't, you know, reverse the number, things like that. Um, and then, but going back to, to your question, you know, just making sure that the we refer to them as artist separations where, you know, too many Bob Smiths will get lumped together. And it's like, oh, no, no, that's actually three different Bob Smiths. And so claiming your channel, you can, or claiming your artist ID, whatever the term is on the different services will allow you to help kind of align that. Um, and if you're still getting stuck, reach out to your distributor and ask for, ask for help. That's what we're here for. Yeah, you guys do have really great customer service. Like even like sometimes I don't even bother the humans I know there because I know your customer service will respond to a question like that. And this is my own personal bias, but maybe just like meditate for a minute before you fill out your release information just so you can get calm and focused. That's that's really good advice how like you you really have to nail that. So thank yeah. you for that. Yeah. Cool. Any other questions on distributing to Spotify and stuff? Yeah, Maggie. So say we want to switch to CD Baby. Um, 
What would be the most efficient and streamlined way for us to approach doing that? Would we should we keep our material up on the other distributor, or should we bring it all to CD Baby? Have you seen kind of both approaches? Yeah, um, that I've definitely seen both approaches. Um, it, it's kind of a personal choice, you know. If if you're distributing and you want to keep all of your sales histories and earnings and all that data associated with the, um, uh, not sales histories, but like uh, play counts and things like that associated with your release, you'll want to bring your existing ISRCs and identifiers with you. Um, if you're not that concerned about it, you can just, you know, fire up a new release. We'll sign new identifiers, new UPC and new ISRCs and, uh, then once that's live, you can request to have the other one pulled down. But uh, if you do want to kind of shift everything neatly, it might be a, a minute where it's like, oh, it's down for a couple days and then it's back up under the new provider. Um, but we, we do see people shifting their catalogs. Um, it, it's a thing that happens. We probably have a Help Center article about it. Uh, and I am the first to admit that I am not the exact expert on that, but it happens a lot. And I know that artists, you know, it's a personal choice. I've seen it done both ways, either, you know, cancel at your old place, re-sign up, and you'll have that window where there's a gap, or you might have a window where there's two versions of it available while you're waiting uh, for the, the old one to come down while the new one is already live. So it sounds like the the ISRC code is really the answer to that because people don't want to lose their their play counts and stuff. So can you let us know what an ISRC code is? Oh yeah, so it's you don't need to know the international acronym. sound yeah. recording. <laughs> I was going to say you don't need to know the acronym, but like, what is it? I mean, oh. if you know it, great. But <laughs> yeah, uh, so it's it's the identifier for an individual track. Uh, it is how you know, the DSPs will report earnings and consumption data and the ISRC is so important and so crucial. And, you know, there's, it, it's the, you know, that paired with the, the UPC, which is like the barcode for the release, those two things together. It's like, okay, I know who this money belongs to. I know what account to put it in. Uh, and it's also how, how, you know, it's how the DSPs track it. It's how we track it. It's just a standard universal identifier for the, for your content. And how does one, and yeah, every sound recording, yeah. uh, it, every unique sound recording has its own ISRC. So like if you have an album and, you know, five years later, you're going to release a best of, if you're using that same like audio from the first album to put on your best of, you can use that same ISRC. If you're changing the audio at all, then you would give it a new ISRC. And how do you get an ISRC code as well as if you're distributing distributing a new release with CD Baby, can you help provide them? Oh, yeah. We give ISRCs to any account or any release for free. Uh, if you happen to have your own ISRCs, you can bring those with you. Um, it just, you know, as you're going through the, the sign-up flow and inputting all of the release information, you'll be prompted. It's like, do you have an ISRC? No. Or do you need an ISRC? Yes. And then we just assign them. They're, they're free. Yeah. So pop that in like a master artist, uh, a master Google spreadsheet, you know, have all your ISRC codes in one place. Um, 
Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. We'll go to you next, and then we have an online question. We have three. You know what? We'll start with an online question first. Mix it up. All right. So first question from online is from W. Terry for, and they say, what do you think about the merger between Groover and CD Baby that happened last year? Yeah. So it's, it's not a merger. It's just a partnership, um, you know, and it's freaking amazing. I love it. Our artists are really, really into it. Uh, if you don't know Groover, they, you know, you can get some editorial feedback and potential playlist pitching. It's really economical. Um, Chris Robley on our um, on our team tried it out, and he wrote a great kind of synopsis of it. You know, he pitched. It wasn't just new releases; it was also some catalog tracks. But he pitched it. He won a lot of playlist pitchings out of it, and he also got some really great feedback that, that he appreciated. Um, but it's amazing. We love our friends at Groover. Highly encourage you all to check it out. But it's just a it's just a partnership at this point. Great. Thank you. Let's do one more online question, audience, and then online. All right. So this question is from Days Atomic. What sync services does CD Baby offer? Uh, yeah. So we can, you know, provide the um, sync through YouTube, Facebook, Instagram. Um, we also do traditional sync placements. Like we've had a lot of our content you know, in, in major motion pictures. Uh, I was so excited. Uh, I was watching Yellowstone one day and the music came on. I'm like, ah, that was a CD baby artist. Um, so, you know, big TV shows, big budget productions. Uh, it, it's great. I think there was, I think there was even a, um, one of our artists, they're like a, a motivational speaker. Their, their audio was used in an ad that was in some big, the Super Bowl. I'm, I'm not a sports person, so I'm like, ah, a sports ball thing. Uh, but we've won amazing placements for our artists, HBO, Fox, um, you know, what we do in the shadows, I know, has used a few songs from our catalog. And it's not something that, you know, you don't have to have a massive following and be wildly popular already. If your music fits what that music supervisor is looking for, you know, it's the right mood, it's the right tempo, it's the right, you know, thematic content. You know, we've had artists be like, why did I just get this giant payment from you all? I haven't been, you know, I haven't been earning much. And it's like, oh, because you've got a sync placement. So it can kind of come out of left field for some people, which is awesome. Like, what a, what a great surprise. I can vouch. You guys do a really great job um, for sync when, when artists opt into that. So very cool. Um, do you mind handling the audience question? Hi, um, Emily. My name is um, Leonard Taylor, and my question is, um, as independent artists, everybody kind of wants that, and I'm kind of dating myself, everybody wants that Master P deal, you know, that one where it's kind of like a 85-15. Now, what is the split with, say, CD Baby, or can, you know, is those, those type of deals like that still available as independent artists? So. Yeah, so if you want to get your music just on the regular you know, digital stores, streaming services, Apple, Spotify, Deezer, um, Tidal, any any of these services, we take 9%. So you get 91%, we take 9 So, uh, you know, I that was something coming from the, uh, 
the audit world of major label music, I was like, oh my word, like why, why do people sign up for these things? <laughs> like the, the amount of money that everyone is just like, take, 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 take. And then the artist is left with like such a small share. Like that, honestly, that's why CD Baby was so exciting to me. It's like, oh, no, we put the artists first. Like they're the ones doing the really hard work of creating and, you know, pouring their heart and soul into their, their release. It's like they should be the one that benefits the most. I was going to talk about this at we the end. 9%. Of the, yeah, I was going to mention this at the end of the episode, but obviously this is negotiable. What roughly is a major label split? Same I mean, way, for, way back when. Yeah, for a single solo artist. Yeah, I mean, way back when it was like a big deal if you were retaining 15%. Yes. Like if you're up and coming, I mean, there were some pretty, pretty, pretty rough deals that I saw, especially it was really common where you'd see some up and coming artist, and, you know, they had some big league producer come in and they take away such a big chunk and then the artist is left with like not very much but i mean this is was like 85 15 i think was like the golden standard of holy shit i've really made it i got a good deal yeah. with 15 percent going to the artist not 85 Correct. yeah i mean you're exactly right so that would be like a superstar deal with a major um 15% in the artist's favor, 50, uh, 85 to the major label. So CD Baby has essentially flipped that ratio. You guys are 91% to the artist, 9% uh, commission to you guys. And what we're implying is there are, you know, for new artists signed to major labels, it's going to be 9% in, 9% for the artist, 91% um, to the major label. And then what Carl Folks was talking about in our business affairs episode, you know, a third of your 9% um, on a major label could be going to a producer. So, or four or four or five percent, depending on the size of the producer. Yeah. All right. We had one more audience question. All right. And then it's also from days, a days atomic. Uh, they said, is CD baby making any moves towards promoting membership platforms for artists like Patreon? Um, I mean, we don't have any intentions of building out anything like that ourselves, but, you know, if going back to our here now platform, you could totally throw in a link. We have a spot for a custom link to, you know, put in your Patreon platform, your Patreon link. Um, we can help with fulfillment. If you do have physical goods that you're, you're sending out to your, um, your, your patrons, um, we can do that fulfillment for you. You would just ship us, you know, all of the stuff and then give us your, your, your list of people and where everything needed to go. So there are definitely ways for us to help and support artists in that, but um, we don't have any direct relationships at this time. Uh, you can hang on, on to that yourself. That's kind of what we were talking about, you know, like keep your Patreon, keep yeah. your band camp, uh, keep your website, your band Zoogle stuff. So all good there. Yeah. One more from Eli. Okay, I'm sorry if this is kind of like a stupid question, but I'm just kind of confused. Um, so if like the status quo back in the day was like for a distribution deal, the record label would keep 85%. How, how is it even possible? How does it even make sense that you guys have completely like flipped that? Like, I don't understand how that's equitable for you 
or like, I don't know. I just, I'm kind of confused. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a great question. And it's also one of those things where it's like, I'm baffled by why some people still want a label deal. Um, You know, but we, you know, we make our money in a variety of different ways. We've got our submission fees that you pay to, you know, get your music distributed. You know, we take our commission from your earnings um, and then, you know, your physical sales, we still do physical fulfillment. So if you want your music on Amazon or if you want it in retail stores, we have a relationship um, with Alliance Distribution. They do a lot of like the, the mom and pop record stores. Um, but, you know, we take our, our $4 for, for those sales and then the rest goes to the artist. Um, but, no, it's a great question. It's a fundamental like, why, why don't more people go independent? Um, I think the, the big reason why some people do still aspire to a label deal is, you know, they're afforded a little bit more in terms of like hands-on support where, you know, you've got a team of a, a marketing team that's doing the marketing for your release. They're coming up with the creative, they're spending the money, they're writing the checks. You'll end up paying for it um, through deductions on your royalties, but you don't have to put in the, you know, the elbow grease to make that happen. Um, you know, if you need tour support, they, they can help with that. Uh, if you need an advance, a label might be a better deal. Um, but there are ways that you can get advances now as an independent artist without having to you know, sign away your rights. Uh, Beatbread is a great company. They do, they do advances uh, for independent artists. Um, I know a handful of CD Baby artists that have uh, sought advances through beat bread. And so that is kind of like the, the marriage of the best of both worlds. It's like, Oh, this is a thing that an artist needed that was appealing about a major label, but they didn't want to go the major label route. They can go the independent route and they're willing to put in the work elsewhere, or, you know, maybe they do have a team to help them with that. But now it's a great question. It's, I hope more people, and I, I know more people will start shifting into kind of taking control or keeping control of their own destiny and career rather than signing it over to a major label. The other answer, answer, Eli, is scale. So like we talked about how now anyone with access to a laptop can record and distribute. That wasn't the case in the pre-digital era. So when there was, you know, when you could only have a limited amount of releases you know, the split's going to be whatever, right? It's going to be 90-10 in the label's favor. But now what companies like CD Baby and Song Trust have done has come in to make sure that all the millions and hundreds of thousands of artists out there can distribute their music worldwide and collect on their publishing as well. So basically, I mean, not to be like cliche about it, but it's basically the explosion of the creator economy, Right. So in the pre-digital era, there was a finite, I mean, there was, this is a better way to say it. There was a finite amount of artists releasing music and now there's millions, right? So companies like CD Baby now make sure your music gets out everywhere um, as opposed to, I mean, you, you could look it up and see how many, you know, artists were releasing music in like the year 2000 versus now, which is why it is that much more important uh, to read and listen to chapter one, get your art together, right? Because there's that much more music out there. So your art has to be amazing and true to your heart, your soul, and your spirit, because in my opinion, that's what's going to connect with people for the long term. Does that make sense? Cool. 
All right. Well, Christine, we'll let you get back to your farm and get on with your Saturday. Thanks so much for all your knowledge and help today. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Great. This is my first podcast. So I know. I, I couldn't like, believe oh. that. You did such a great job. Well, thank you. You made it easy. So thank <laughs> you. It's my Midwesternness. Uh, well, let's give it up for Christine, everyone, taking time for us on a Saturday. I love it. Christine, thanks again, and we'll be in touch. Yeah, sounds great. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, you all are stuck with me a little bit longer. Um, I have a few other things for you. Uh, in my experience, and I kind of implied this, working with aggregators like CDU Baby, um, I've had good experiences with TuneCore. I've had good experiences with Label Engine as well. Um, if you can find a human there, that helps. It's not necessarily make or break, um, but I've had great experiences working with uh, CD Baby's marketing team, um, and they've helped to prioritize releases. And um, like Christine said, you you know they have this automated in their software anyway to help you with playlist pitching and stuff. But um, I mean, I've spoken at CD Baby conferences, you know, so. I'm sure some of that stuff is starting to return post-pandemic. If you want to go down to Nashville um, or if you want to go to Spain, I spoke at one in Spain, which was really fun. Um, but, you know, there's also stuff like what we're doing now. So I'm sure CD Baby and a lot of the aggregators have, you know, um, well, I, you know, online conferences basically, right? So you can still connect with humans um, and start to build some relationships there. So... I want to talk about another option for distribution um, that's not open to everyone. Um, again, like I try to present everything in this podcast in order. We started with aggregators because anyone can use an aggregator. And honestly, like with what I'm about to go through, there's no like this is better than that. In fact, I would actually argue that the aggregators are better um, because you keep all your money and you keep all your rights. Um, and you do keep your rights with what I'm about to talk about next. But there are also distribution companies like The Orchard, Symphonic, Red Eye. And these are digital distribution companies um, that are just more selective, kind of like how we talked about uh, with sync companies, right? There's music library, music libraries that are open to everyone, but then there's also selective uh, sync companies like Terrorbird, Zinc, um, Bank Robber, Music Alternatives, right? So there's kind of an equivalent to that in music distribution. Like I said, examples are uh, Red Eye, The Orchard, Symphonic. And um, they are, these are all, you know, this is all negotiable too, but they're often going to be 80% in your favor, 20% to the company. Um, maybe it's 90-10, maybe it's more 80-20 if you do get an advance. Um, so these companies, you... Uh, if, if you do have strong numbers and a strong track record um, and you need or want an advance, um, which is a cash payment up front, distribution companies can, can help you with that. But you're not going to get as good a cut. You know, you're not going to get as good of a um, percentage if you get an advance. And there's nothing wrong with getting an advance. If you need an advance to get going, to live your life, to tour, um, for promo, all that good stuff. And again, these distribution companies, they are just handling your streaming relationships. They are not touching Bandcamp or your website. And that's actually where you're going to make the most money anyway. Um, I've had tons of success working with artists, um, you know, who distribute through CD Baby and, and TuneCore and Label Engine. 
And I've had success, you know, working with artists um, at these distribution companies, but not so much so. And I, I feel bad saying this because I have friends at these companies, but not so much though that I'm like, oh, we have to go with one of these selective distribution companies. Um, that said, I think Symphonic does a really good job. Um, they're a little bit more in the dance space, but I've also had indie artists with them that do really well because, you know, if any music company, especially something like um, distribution, if they mostly do dance, if not, I'm just generalizing, if 90% of a, you know, company's genre is various EDM genres and like 10% is, you know, indie or hip hop or whatever, well, then you're going to stand out even more, right? Like it's going to be easier for them to pitch you to rap and hip hop playlists or indie rock playlists or whatever, Um because they don't have, you know, that 90% catalog in dance. So what I've seen work really well with Symphonic is, you know, if you're, if you're doing well in streaming and this sounds like kind of a weird thing to say, but if it's something you're interested in, you know, if you're starting to ask questions, how can I optimize my streaming? How can I get on more playlists? You know, if you just kind of want to set it and forget it, um, something like CD Baby can really take care of you because their algorithmic playlists are, are going to push it out and things like that. Um, but Symphonic works with a lot of artists um, that don't have managers and don't necessarily have teams and they work directly with those artists. So if you're a little bit more of a hands-on artist, um, you might want to check out a company like Symphonic. But at the same time, I've worked with plenty of big artists where we choose to t- distribute via CD Baby and aggregators because the artist is going to keep more money, right? Um, so that's what I think is interesting about some of these more selective distribution companies. Um, it's not necessarily like you're going to get, you're, you're going to make that much more money and you're not going to have as high of a percentage. I'm not saying don't do it. Um, and a lot of this comes down to, to human relationships as well. Symphonic and Red Eye in particular can also help you with physical distribution a little bit. Um, I know they've both engaged uh, team members that can help with CD distribution, uh, which amazingly still exists, and and vinyl distribution, which I'm also going to talk about in a second. Um, Actually, I'm literally going to talk about it right now. So physical distribution... you know, almost every artist I know are, you know, is still pressing up CDs because they're so cheap to print. Um, you know, there's a million CD printing companies out there. So use whatever makes sense to you. I've had good experiences with A to Z printing over the years, but it really doesn't matter. Right. But that's something that costs like what a dollar to press up. Um, you can sell it for 10 bucks. You can autograph it, sell it for more personally autograph it, sell it for even more. And it's kind of a nice merch item at shows. Um, vinyl is obviously a whole other thing and very popular. Um, and as many of you know, and have experienced, there's been a huge delay in vinyl production because of supply chain and the pandemic. Um, so when you're selling vinyl, everyone listening should have an idea of their vinyl numbers for release because you've been running your pre-order. Um, but say you haven't, Um, I really like Digger's Factory for on-demand vinyl because then you aren't, you don't have to press up like a minimum amount of copies, right? Um, Your profit margin is not going to be as high with an on-demand company. Um, But if you're just getting going and you're pressing vinyl and you have no idea and you don't want them stuck in your bedroom or a garage or whatever, I don't, a garage is probably not a good place to store vinyl, um, Digger's Factory is a, is a great on-demand um, 
company for vinyl. But with all vinyl, but especially on demand, you know, check out those test pressings, ask them um, for samples, you know, of of vinyl they've put out before. Again, I really like Digger's Factory, but there's a lot of, um, you know, we're going to talk about on demand with merch companies as well, but you always want to get samples, sample products up front and make sure the quality is up to par because it, you know, there are good ones out there, but it can also be on demand for a reason, if that makes sense. And again, that's not going to be your highest profit margin, but the ease of it and not having to pay up front for minimum quantities um, makes a lot of sense for a lot of people. Um, as far as minimum quantities go, if you do want a better profit margin, I, I've had really good experiences working with Gotta Groove for vinyl. And they have a hundred um, minimum order, which is not too bad. Um, and if you have uh, pre-ordered, uh, sold a lot of pre-orders of vinyl, um, I really like United Record Pressing in Nashville. Um, I don't know if they do public tours. I hope they do. They've been around a really long time. Um, so if they do, get down there and check it out. Um, but they, uh, their minimum is 300. So um, again, for on-demand, uh, I recommend Digger's Factory, Got a Groove. I've always had great experiences. There are 100 uh, copies minimum. And someone like UPR, you know, uh, United, United Record Pressing is, uh, is 300 copies. If you uh, are selling a few hundred copies of vinyl, which is really hard to do. I've worked with big artists where those are great numbers. You should reach out to the Coalition of Independent Music Stores, which uh, is abbreviated to SIMS, and let them know that. Let their great team know, hey, I've sold 200, 300 copies of my vinyl because they distribute to uh, in-person, in real life record stores nationwide and internationally, and they will buy vinyl from you. So especially when I'm working with vinyl darlings like you know, guys in the raconteurs and Wilco and stuff like that. I just go immediately to Scott Register, who's known as Reg, and say, hey, we have this Pat Sansone release coming out. And he's like, great, I want to order 100 of them or 200 of them. And he's just going to buy those directly from Pat, which is really nice. Um, So keep the coalition of independent music stores in mind um, when you're hitting, you know, 100, 200, 300 uh, copies in vinyl sales. Okay. Um, when you are distributing through CD Baby or an aggregator or really anyone digitally to the DSPs, that's the digital service providers, so Spotify and all of that, make sure they also deliver your music to Pandora. Most people here know what Pandora is. Um, sometimes it can take a little bit longer for your music to get up on Pandora. So when you have a release out, double check, make sure it's out. That's another thing you can remind your fans, you know, like check out the girls radio station on Pandora, like make a a station for you. And um, Christine also mentioned Pandora's AMP program. Um, Pandora has a lot of promotional tools as well, you know, where you can do um, IDs and say, hey, you know, this is Maggie from me. Um, I don't know if you say Maggie is your artist name too, Um, but check out my Pandora station um, to remind your fans uh, it's out there. So make sure your music's up on Pandora, which again, should be through these aggregators, but it can take a second. So you want to double check that and then also push it out and remind your fans. At the same time, in this part of the process, please go and sign up for SoundExchange, which Christine was talking about. 
And that is going to be how you get paid for your Pandora royalties as well as your Sirius royalties. Um, the fancy phrase uh, for what uh, SoundExchange collects on for you is non-interactive internet radio. And that basically means you can't pick the song like on Pandora and on Sirius. Um, you only need to sign up for SoundExchange once, but I would make it a habit to go in there once a year and make sure your metadata is all lined up and that all your tracks are being collected on. Um, and we're going to do a whole revenue stream episode um, so you have a checklist to make sure you're not missing any revenue streams that are owed to you if you write music, record, slash release, and play live. But like I said, at this part of the process, when you're checking that your music is... Um, up and out on Pandora. Uh, you also want to sign up for SoundExchange. And SoundExchange is another one where if you don't register within two and a half years or whatever, you don't get that money. It's also another one that is regulated by the government. So it's nothing to be scared of. Just sign up and go get your money. And quickly, just to wrap up, I um, we talked a little bit about labels, but obviously that was inherently... Um, at least 50% of a label's job in the pre-digital era. So working with a label is another way to distribute music. And um, I talked about this a little bit in the business affairs uh, episode, but, and all this is negotiable and it depends on the label, but an indie label is generally 50-50 between you and the label and you get 50% of your recording royalties after recoupment. Um, recoupment just means whatever money they spent I mean, it sucks to hear. It's like, oh, we don't know what this FedEx thing was before. And I'm not trying to freak you out, but like I've had those experiences too. Like um, I swear I saw like pencils on, you know, as an expense once, like or it was like something random like that. And I remember being out to lunch. Um, it was it was more of a distribution company, but it was kind it was kind of a hybrid label distribution company. Um, and someone I had brought to the lunch offered to pay for the tacos, the artist was not there. And the head of the company said, oh no, I got it. You know, he was such a hero about everything, which I only felt that way in hindsight. And then I saw that lunch on the artist's royalty statement who wasn't even there, right? Where frankly, the guy I was dating at the time offered to pay for the whole thing. And I remember telling him and he was like, oh my gosh, that person acted like he was the biggest hero ever and wouldn't um, let, you know, let us pay for anything. So um, yeah, so that's what recruitment means, tacos and uh, pencils, but also PR and radio and, and uh, not that tacos aren't legit, but that, that wasn't legit. That, that still bothers me to this day. Um, yeah, but there are, you know, indie labels generally, uh, you own the recording. Um, there are some indie labels that are 80-20 in their favor. They own the recording forever. Those are kind of the more um, institutional, famous indie labels. It kind of bothers me that they have those terms, to be frank, because why are you calling yourself an indie label if you're kind of trending more towards major label terms? And then once in a while, hate to put age on it, I see some 20-year-old, it's like been in the dance space in particular, <laughs> in the UK in particular, but I'm sure it's everywhere, who will try to offer some artist, you know, 80-20 with, with their new startup label, 80-20 in the label's favor and want to own the recording forever. And, you know, if you're learning anything at this with this podcast, I hope it's not like, you know, do things the way they've always been done just because they've always been done that way, right? Like, um, so if you are an aspiring industry person, don't just do things, you know, because that's how it's been done, you know, owning artists recordings forever. 
Um, I've been very fortunate to... When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, you know, it was, really came through my mentors, but always build businesses around the artists and then take care of the fans a very close second. And then, of course, Christine and I touched on major labels. Again, all of this is negotiable. Um, generally, and, and Christine's right, this would be like a superstar deal um, to some extent, even to this day. Um, a major label is going to be 15% in your favor, 85% to the label, you know, lower than that for a new artist, lower than that, you know, if you're working with a big producer and more often than not, the label is going, a major label is going to want um, the rights to your publishing, the rights to your merchandise, the rights to your rights to your branding, and of course the recording in perpetuity. Um, but I mentioned, uh, I interviewed Freddie Gibbs manager um, for one of my uh, university classes and um you know, they license their records to major labels, which is an amazing place to be in. So Freddie's going to own those recordings at some point. Um, but they worked their butts off <laughs> for 10 and 15 years or whatever to be able to get in the position to do that. So, you know, I tell my students this all the time, like, um, if you want to be on a label, you have to do everything I'm telling you. <laughs> like you have to build yourself up um, and also, it's not really your choice if you're on a label or not. So you have to do all this stuff anyway. And if you are on a label, in a way, it's almost like even more important for you to do all this stuff, to be collecting that data and building up your fan base. Because what happens when, you know, if they go out of business, if they get acquired by someone, that's much more common. If your key person there leaves, you know, like you've built a great relationship with an A&R person that believes in you, they move on to somewhere else. God forbid they pass away, right? Like there's a million things that can, that, that can happen. Um, so just keep this stuff in mind. So I'm certainly not going to tell you what to do. Um, you know, it's, it's really up to each individual artist and their situation, but this is why, especially when I work with bigger and money-making artists, I have them distribute their music through an aggregator because they keep the vast majority of it and they own their rights. So I think that's pretty much it. Unless anyone has any questions on distribution, uh, I mean, really like today in general, distribution companies I just talked about, labels, anything like that. Or do we want to go enjoy our Saturdays? All right. Well, thank you all for tuning in online. Thank you to everyone here at No Studios. Thanks to the audience for braving uh, the winter storm we have in Milwaukee today. And come on back on Tuesday where we are going to be talking about how to market with or without a budget. We will catch you then. Thanks. Thanks.